This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, April 2nd, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 45 today. So if you'd open there, and then one last, really second to last plug uh, for tonight or this afternoon at 4 o'clock. I know the sun's still may peak out. We'll expect it to probably start rain by then. But at four o'clock, hugely important meeting. Um, <clears throat> it's a members meeting. It's not just for members only. Anyone can attend. And it's just our way of, of sharing with you decisions we're making, directions we're going. Um, and it's pretty exciting stuff, but just very important stuff. So we want as many people to be there as possible. So uh, if you're a single, obviously, please be there. If you're a couple and you got kids and only one can be there, please be there. Uh, we'll have it hopefully audio recorded uh, so you can hear it, but uh, we also would like some interaction, some conversation, so I'm just keep plugging that as much as I can. We are almost done with Genesis. We've been going through this uh, book, which is 50 chapters. We're in 45, and uh, from 37 to 50 is the story of Joseph that we have been spending our time in. And Genesis 37 in the story way back when, was 13 years ago. And that's when Joseph was kind of sent into the pits of Egypt. uh, And he was done so by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. His brothers faked his death. And then they returned home to their dad and told them all kinds of lies. And Jacob, when he saw the bloodied robe that was really covered in goat's blood, uh, part of the ruse, Uh, He assumed that his beloved son, his favorite son, Joseph, had been torn to pieces. And the grief of that loss of his favorite son, any son, but particularly his favorite son, caused him to literally tear his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn for many days, probably years. And now, fast forward 13 years and, and many chapters from 37 to 44. At the end of 44, we heard last week, we see Joseph's brothers are made to feel the same things. Joseph, who is now the ruler of Egypt, the nation that once enslaved him, he hides his identity in order to test the hearts of his brothers. And when the youngest brother, as part of one of these tests, Benjamin, is blamed for stealing and condemned to a life of slavery, you have the brothers tear their own clothes in anguish and mourning, believing that they have just lost their brother in the same way that their father had lost Joseph. And they're made to experience the pain that their pain caused someone else. Now before coming to Egypt for the second time, Judah one of Joseph's brothers, had pledged to his father Jacob that we need to take Benjamin back, but I will take full responsibility for Benjamin if anything should happen. So he's remembering this. And the anguish that he's experiencing is is rooted somewhat in the pain he knows his father is going to experience. And we see as Judah begins to plea that he has been changed. He was the guy who led the whole plan to profit from selling their brother into slavery. And now he volunteers at the end of chapter 44 to suffer to save his brother. There isn't a greater 180 that could happen. The one who enthusiastically ate a sandwich while Joseph was crying from the pit and then say, hey, let's make some money off this is the one now who is offering to be a substitute for his brother in a life of slavery. Chapter 45 is the climax of this all coming together. All the emotion, all the situation, it's all coming to a head. Something that began 13 years ago. And as Joseph listens to his brother's pleas, especially those of Judah, he cannot control his emotion. Sends everyone out so that he can make himself known. And we'll pick it up in chapter 45 of what the climax of this great story 
sounds like. It says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And so Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. And so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, herds, and all that you have There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all of my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell on his brother. Benjamin's neck and he wept and Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them and after that his brothers talked with him and when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers have come it pleased Pharaoh and his servants and Pharaoh said to Joseph say to your brothers do this load your beasts go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I'll give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land and you Joseph are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey to each and all of them. He gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread, and provision for his father on the journey. And then he sent his brothers away, and they departed. As they departed, he said to them, Do not fight. Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he's the ruler over all the land of Egypt, and his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive, and I will go and see him before I die. What an amazing story. Joseph weeps so loud at the moment that he reveals himself that his whole household and the household of Pharaoh can hear him. And this is, these are not tears of sorrow. These are tears of joy, utter elation, 13 years of repressed joy. I am Joseph! And for his brothers, this is the unexpected moment of revelation. This is the occasion where where they are awakened to all things. And in a moment, they see their past differently. And every step that led up to this moment, and now they see even their present situation differently. 
It's the moment where they, they see their future differently. It's that moment where everything in their lives has changed. And for anyone who is saved by Christ, anyone who is awakened by Christ has this experience. If you are a Christian, if Jesus has saved you, if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart God raised Him from the dead, there was a moment in your life that that became real. You may not be able to identify the act's day or the hour or the place, but there was a moment in time where that which was once a foolish story became true. Where He who was once a liar or a lunatic or just some weird loser in the Middle East became Lord. There was a time when those words that perhaps were joy-killing, delight-robbing, the words of God that became life-giving. There was a moment when those weirdos who gathered together on Sunday and sang songs about Jesus and did weird stuff. And you thought, man, those guys are so different than me and so weird. and uh, They're just strange. I don't like them. Became family. Where you begin to see, ah, there's just a bunch of sinners gathered together who love Jesus and know who they are and they're honest about it. A change. The first church that I helped plant was called Damascus Road. And that's a story that, that comes out of Acts chapter 9. It's about a man named Saul who is a Pharisee, a really good one. By good one, I mean he knew his Bible. He worshipped God exactly as he was called to. And when the small Christian sect grew up, he felt threatened by it and began to persecute it. And he was on to his way on the, a road to a small town called Damascus and he carried with him letters from the high priest that empowered him with the authority to arrest anyone that he found belonging to the way. That was how they labeled Christians at that time. He hated Christians. He wanted to arrest Christians. He wanted to kill Christians. And he thought he would do that to the glory of God. But along the way, Saul encountered his moment. The occasion of transformation. The unexpected meeting where everything changed. A bright light shone in the middle of the road so bright it blinded him and knocked him on his horse. And on the ground, he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which Saul replied, who are you, Lord? He has that at the end. If you ever get knocked off your horse with a bright light, you might want to add Lord on the end, just in case. Right? Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. The one you're persecuting. And in a moment, everything changed for Saul. In that moment, the Pharisee who was called Saul the Pharisee who was known as the persecutor of the church, arrester and murderer of Christians, became and would become Paul the Apostle who would be martyred for his faith, beheaded because he preached Jesus as Lord. Everything changed for Paul. And it wasn't merely because, which is a miracle in itself, that God had called him. It was because Paul knew exactly who God was calling he knew who he was. A tattoo verse, right? Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the greatest. Paul knew what grace meant because he knew how sinful he was. He had done things in the name of God to destroy the people of God. Everything in a moment changed. And that's what Revelation does. The awakening changes you. It changes who you are. It changes how you see everything. It changes what 
your purpose in life is. The very thing that so many people today are looking for. So let's take a look at Joseph's brothers and their interaction with Joseph and how they were transformed by this moment. The first thing that they experience is, a, is a, really a change of position. And I'll explain that. When Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, right? He is weeping so loud that everyone hears him. But you'll notice in the text, his brothers don't weep at all. I'm Joseph! Right? I'm Joseph! Oh my and they're like this. Who? In fact, the Scriptures say that the brothers say nothing and they are dismayed. They feel dismayed at His presence. That moment of revelation, the moment of awakening has sapped them of courage and completely crushed them in heart. And we can only imagine what or why they're feeling that. Oh my gosh, this is Joseph, you guys. The guilt attached to that. The shame attached to that. The fear. If you think about it, Joseph is the only one, not their dad, not Benjamin, not even the Egyptians around. Joseph is the only one who knows exactly who these guys are. Joseph is the only one who knows, knows everything that these guys have done. Joseph was the one they hated well before they stuck him in a pit. Joseph is the one they, they despised, the one they hurt, the one they sold into slavery, the one they've been lying about for 13 years, and now this guy is ruler of the known world. Which is, or makes what Joseph does next most shocking. He says, come near to me. Come closer to me. The last thing that they would have expected him to do, because it's precisely the last thing that they would have ever done themselves. It's genuine grace. We talk about grace a lot. But I'm not sure we experience the kind of grace that the brothers are experiencing now very often. Because grace is that love and that embrace that is received when you actually deserve much worse. It's not grace to neutral or grace to someone who just needs a little bit of love. It's grace to someone who deserves punishment. Grace doesn't make sense to us. It shouldn't. Grace doesn't make sense. Like, why would Jesus show Paul, a guy who's murdering Christians, grace? But here's what Joseph says. I'm your brother Joseph, in verses 4 and 5, whom you sold into Egypt. Right? I know what you did, guys. I haven't forgotten. And now, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Remember, you put me in the pit and you hated me and all those things? Don't worry. Don't be distressed about that. I mean, I'd be a little bugged if I was you, but don't worry about it. For God sent me before you to preserve your life. And you go, well, why would the brothers be so distressed or angry with themselves? Because, as I said, they know exactly who they are. They know exactly what they've done. And that's what makes this grace so amazing. Grace changes everything. And it changes everything for only the sinner. You'll never experience grace if you can't get to the place where you acknowledge that you are pretty messed up. That you are undeserving. But that's what makes grace amazing. Joseph basically says, I know exactly who you are. I've known this whole time. But in what he says, in what he does, it gives us a picture, honestly, of, of what Jesus does. And that's really the whole point of the story it's trying to point us to. Imagine these brothers and the different things that instantly go in their mind. That they, oh my gosh, all this is true. Because Joseph had just said, I'm Joseph. 
first thing they realize, Joseph knew them before his brothers knew him. What does that mean? Joseph had kept himself hidden from his brothers as they interacted for many different exchanges. Remember, Joseph had spent 17 years, so he wasn't like a toddler when he went into slavery. He was a 17-year-old, and he grew up with his brothers, and he knew his brothers very well. He knew how they thought, what they liked, what they disliked, their personalities, their appetites, probably even some of their hopes and their dreams, their quirks. He knew them. He knew at this point not just what they needed physically, like food to survive. He knows exactly what they really need spiritually. Even if they wouldn't confess it, we later hear them confess it privately like how guilty they feel. He knows what they need. And He knows them before they know Him. He remains hidden. And I believe He does so because He knows exactly the right time and the right way that they'll be ready to receive His grace. Did you know that that God knows you better than you know yourself? And He knows you way before you ever know Him. Psalm 139 is such a powerful little song. It says, O Lord, You have searched me and You have known me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all together. Do you realize even before you know Him at all, the Lord knows everything there is to know about you. There is never a discovery with, wow, I didn't know that about John. Wow, okay. It's good to know that he's like that. Good to know that's how he responds and reacts, thinks, feels. He knows you perfectly and fully before you know him. We wonder sometimes why God reveals himself at some times or different times early and other times later or other times through different experiences and I think it really boils down to God knows you better than you know yourself and He knows exactly what you need, when you need it, how you need it. But they also realize in the moment, not just that, man, He's known this this whole time, that Joseph actually loved his brothers before they loved him. See, the brothers came to love Joseph eventually. It'll actually take, it's not here. It'll take a couple chapters after Jacob dies. They still think Joseph's waiting to like spank them. And they're waiting. And when Jacob dies, they freak out. But they eventually do love him. But not before they hated him a bunch. They hated him because of his dreams. They hated him because God had said not just that he was going to be a friend and a brother, but that he was going to be Lord. It's interesting. There are many who admire Jesus for his humility. And there are many who admire and value Him for His teachings. There are many who appreciate His example. But there are far fewer who will acknowledge Him as Lord. Tragic hero? Yep. Good teacher? Sure. Great example? Fine. But Lord of all? Ruler of my life? No. No. Not to embarrass my sister-in-law, but many of you know Maren. And I remember sitting in my living room with her about, I don't know, several months before she um, was changed by Jesus. And we'd had many discussions about Jesus for many years. They didn't always go that well. And at this time, I was a little uh, maybe edgy that day. And she was talking about Jesus. I don't recall exactly. I just said, look, you don't love Jesus. She was very offended. Yeah, I do. I said, no, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't love Jesus. You might admire Jesus. You might respect Jesus. You might like Jesus a little bit, but you don't love Him as Lord of your life. You don't consider what Jesus would have you do with your life and kind of went on this little sermonette. I thought it was really good, but I got a phone call later that day. Actually, I think my wife got a phone call, and it was just... uh, how dare you 
kind of thing. You're the reason why people don't love Jesus. You're the reason why you're very, very dark, angry. I felt pretty like, gosh, okay, I guess I'll apologize, right? A few months later, Marin is sitting on that same couch probably, weeping about what Jesus had done in her life. See, Jesus loved her way before she loved him. He was pursuing her as he pursues all of us. But it doesn't feel like that. Even though these guys hate Joseph, he loves them. Before they know him, he loves them. I am so struck, and we kind of read it, and I think we read it so often, we take it for granted. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, it's a very profound verse. If you think about it, because Jesus died on the cross several thousand years ago, and then that was written probably, you know, 40-ish years after that fact. According to Paul, Christ died for me before I was born. Before my parents were born. Before their parents were born. Which means that when Paul talks about the sin that was present, he's thinking about all the sin I would ever commit. The Lord knew me before I was even created. Thought about me before I was existing. And he knew I was going to be a sinful son of a gun. And yet, while I was sinful in thought and word and deed, in a way that I can't comprehend, like if, if the Lord, which hasn't happened, gave me a roll of paper, like that big butcher paper you had in like high school, like, write every sin you can think of. Okay. And you're writing it all. I would never be able to write every sin, recount every way that I have fallen short of God's glory. But he can. And knowing all of that, He died. See, God loves us before we love Him. And not only does He love us, because of that fact, we know that every action toward us is actually loving, even if we don't perceive it as such. Because isn't that what the brothers experienced, right? Like what, what, what they realized in that moment of Joseph revealing is that yes, they were known before his brothers knew him. He was loved. They were loved even before they loved him, but they were also saved before the brothers even knew they were saved. His brothers never saw his actions toward them as loving. Remember, he talked roughly to them. He threw them in prison. He framed them for a crime he didn't commit. That didn't feel loving. It didn't look loving. But everything Joseph did was purposed for good. Namely, it was constantly and consistently leading them towards salvation. Every word, every trial, every circumstance, every conflict moved them closer to salvation, closer into His presence. Joseph even created tests and trials in their lives. Not to see who they were, but to change who they were so they might be ready to receive grace. God saves them. God saves us before I even know I'm saved. And the trials, and the difficulties, and the pains, and the sin, and the sins committed against us, those aren't the evidence of God just being mean or indifferent. We need to understand, if the story of Joseph is teaching us anything, it's that those are often the means to save you. To bring you to that place of awakening. The place to receive grace. Which brings me to the next point. We, we see that God is ready to show us grace even before we're ready to receive it. But when we do receive it, not only do we recognize we have this new position now, which us with brothers realize, like, well, we're, we're saved. And we're known. And, and we're loved. Our perspective of all things that brought us to that point changes. See, when the veil, which the Bible describes as a veil over our 
eyes and our hearts so we cannot receive and see the glories of Christ. But when that veil is lifted by the grace of God and we see the glories of God in Jesus Christ, what happens is something's lowered. And I believe it's a Gospel-colored lens that helps us to perceive all of the difficulty and the trial and the evil through God's purposes. As much as Joseph's brothers probably want to wallow in self-pity a little bit and have some fears and regret, Joseph wants them to see their lives, to, to lift their eyes and to see that God was not merely behind every event. He was actually in front of it. Consider what Joseph says says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you, brothers, who sent me into the pit, who sold me into slavery. It was not you, brothers, who put me into prison. It was God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He, he declares some crazy things. Some profound things. And it can be summarized probably simply by saying God had a purpose in my suffering and in your sin. God did not author suffering. He did not also merely allow it to happen or react to something unexpected. Oh gosh, look what his brothers did, guys. Okay, let's do this now. That wasn't how it works. God is not surprised. He, he directed it to the extent where Joseph can seem to make him somewhat responsible for it. That doesn't abdicate the responsibility of the brothers in making their decisions, but it is to say God was in charge. See, if God is truly a heavenly Father, if He is truly a heavenly Father who is all-loving and all-powerful, then we can think and believe like Joseph that no matter how bad it gets, I can say with confidence and conviction, God led me here. And no matter how good it gets, because things could prosper, it prospered greatly for Joseph. But he doesn't say, you know what? I got lucky, guys. Look, things worked out. Hey, I was just a really good worker. Glad you taught me that. He says, no matter how good it got, God made this happen. You see that? We could say if God is truly a loving Father and truly an all-powerful Father, we can say no matter how bad it gets, God led me here. God led me through this. God took me through this. And we can also say no matter how good it gets, God is the one who made this happen. Not me. That every time God has saved and been saving me. And that's how Joseph says, He saved me from family difficulty. He saved me from the pit. He saved me from slavery. He saved me from false accusation. He saved me from prison. And He blessed me more than I could have ever imagined. As Joseph reflects on the difficulty that he has experienced, it seems as if if you, if you listen, dare I say he actually sounds thankful. Now I know, like, we, like, aren't you thankful for that difficult time? Aren't you thankful for that horrible experience in prison? Aren't you thankful for that? Are you crazy? And we often want to like put, our, put ourselves into Joseph's place or put ourselves into Job's place and go like, he shouldn't feel that way. I'm just telling you how Joseph feels. He sounds thankful. And he doesn't seem merely thankful to God for saving him from suffering. Dare I say, he's actually thankful to God for saving him by suffering. He's thankful for the suffering. He sees beyond the suffering. He sees through the suffering. He sees what couldn't have happened if not for the suffering. No one wants to pursue suffering. No one desires suffering. But 
I would argue that many people have gone through very difficult things in their life. If you talk to them on the back end of it, they talk about how it changed them in ways that weren't possible. Strengthened them in ways that couldn't have happened. Revealed things that they never would have known about themselves and about the Lord. I often go to this passage when I find myself or others suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any infliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's interesting, we often go to that verse and we talk about so that we may be able to comfort. Well, let's back up a little bit and remind ourselves that in difficult things, call it suffering, call it trial, call it self-inflicted sin or the sin of others that come upon you. Suffering changes us because it brings us closer to God. We experience an intimacy with God, a comfort with God that changes us. And that is what's happened to Joseph. So much so, his perspective of all the bad stuff in his life has changed. And I believe the closer we are to God, the less we actually begin to think about ourselves, even our own suffering. And here Joseph saying that, he acknowledges that God has been working in his own life, but he also acknowledges and sees that there's a larger plan beyond his own salvation in the lives of others. I mean, that's really hard for us to do. Even if we get to the place of like, okay, I'm suffering. This is changing me. I'm going to, okay, it's good. I'm growing. And that's all we think about. This is how I've grown. This is what I've learned. This is what's been comforting for me. Joseph doesn't even stay there, which is not a horrible place to begin. It's a great place to begin. But he stands back and he sees, look what my suffering has done in the lives of others. He says, look what my suffering has done in the lives of you brothers and the lives of the rest of the world. See, we often usually place ourselves at the center of God's story, at the center of the universe, and we decide like, well, God's good purposes are good insofar as they work themselves out for me. And very rarely do we consider the kinds of suffering that we endure for the salvation of others and for God to reveal Himself to others through our suffering. Joseph simply says, look, God used my suffering to save you and to change you and to bless you. More than that, God used my suffering to bless the whole world. He doesn't talk about himself at all. God's self-revelation has changed his perspective. And for all of us, we recognize that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is, is on the cross willingly dying and suffering for His creation, we begin to realize what Paul did in Romans chapter 14 that none of us lives to Himself and none of us dies to Himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. It's about the Lord and what the Lord is doing. I am the Lord's. My time is the Lord's. My money is the Lord's. My trials are the Lord's. Our perspective changes, but the last thing that changes is we're given purpose. We see as Joseph reveals himself that his brothers suddenly have a new lease on life, a new identity, if you will. They don't have to dwell in the past of who they were. They've been given new perspective to see all these terrible things that happened to bring them to this point, and even some of the terrible things they did to bring them to this point. But then they're given a new purpose. They're no longer going to live under the burden of their guilt and shame, starving in a land without food, by virtue of Joseph revealing himself, and by virtue of Joseph, who he is and what he's done, they are going to live fully restored in the best lands of Egypt. The land of Goshen. Whatever the brothers thought Joseph might do to them, he's shown them grace. And instead of rejecting them, he's embraced them and he said, come to me. Come closer to me. Bring everybody down. My dad, their, your families, their herds. Bring them all down. Be present with me in this land. But once they are told to come, it's interesting, they're told to go. He tells them to go get dad. 
And go get the families. And do what? Tell them the good news. That sounds really familiar. Right? Go tell them the news that Joseph, who you thought was dead, is alive. And he sends them home fully equipped with new clothes, new provisions, new strength, blessings. And then he says something very interesting to them. Don't fight. Guys, don't fight along the way. Don't argue along the way. Don't quarrel and you go, why would he say this? Well, I believe it's pretty clear. He doesn't want them to dwell on the past, but look to the future. Stay on mission. See, the second they take their eyes off the Lord and all that He has done for them through this experience is the moment they begin to look at one another. You can imagine what they might say, and Joseph's imagining this, don't forget, don't fight, guys. They may be tempted to play the blame game and not take responsibility. You can imagine them like, Judah, this was your idea. Because what are they going to do? They're going to go back and tell dad. Joseph's alive. What do you mean he's alive? I thought he was dead. Hell about that. Right? So they could play the blame game. You're telling them. I'm not telling them. It's your fault. You largely did it. I didn't want to do it. Oh, quiet, Reuben. They may play the who's the greatest game where they take too much credit. Right? Simeon, well, I got bound and stayed there. Guys, what'd you do? Maybe even Benjamin a little bit. I wasn't even involved. I'm innocent. Right? Or maybe they'll just play the lying game and they just make up a new story. And they won't tell their dad the truth. Joseph is basically concerned with this. That the 200 mile journey, which is going to take a while, they're going to spend their time talking about themselves and not the Lord. See, the gospel of grace is not about what I have done or what I have not done, but about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. You can see constantly, Joseph wants them to talk about God. Start talking about God. What has God done? And we do that so often, or say, not often enough. We take our eyes off Jesus and we start talking about each other or ourselves. Oh, I haven't done this. I'm not able to do this. Why are you talking about yourself at all? I'm convinced, I was told this this past week, this phrase that expression deepens impression. Expression deepens impression. And you think about what you say most often. Are you, are you talking about the gospel of grace? When you consider your relationship with God, like, well, how's my walk today? Does your mind immediately go to what you've done or not done or what Jesus has done? Expression deepens impression. I'm convinced the more we speak truth, the more we will believe truth, and more we will act in line with the truth. And we need to speak the truth of God much more than we need to speak some lies about ourselves. They have a new mission. What's their mission? It's really simple. They're to go home to Canaan and they are to testify to the goodness and greatness of God. Newsflash. That is your purpose in life. The only reason God has left you here is because the Great Commission is yet to be fulfilled. And our responsibility is not to talk about all the awesome things that we do, but to talk about the goodness and greatness and glories of God in Jesus Christ. And when they arrive, they immediately tell Jacob, right, Dad, Dad, Joseph's alive. He's ruling Egypt. And what does Jacob do? What? It says his heart gets numb because he doesn't believe them. He's stuck. He's cynical. He's despairing. And I think at the core of it, the news is too wonderful to be believable. When someone has committed grave sin in their life, when someone comes 
and hears about the gospel, one of the most common responses, I'm, I'm too guilty. Lord can't possibly deal with this mess. What, a, a Lord who forgives all, a Lord who, who promises to save, a Lord who promises to, to wipe away my shame, no way, that can't happen. The news for, for Jacob is too wonderful to believe, and so he doesn't believe it until... You notice what the brothers do next. Verse 27, But when they told him all the words of Joseph, what were the words of Joseph? Well, the words of Joseph included the brother's sin. So they told, Joseph, how could Joseph be alive? Well, we sold him to slavery 13 years ago, Dad. And here's what happened. Despite that, Joseph said that God sent him there and that God protected him and that God was present with him and God made him great and God saved him and God blessed him so that we could be saved. He tells him the testimony of Joseph. And when he hears, hears the good news and sees the wagon, it says his spirits are revived. And he says, enough talk! Let's go see Joseph! Let's move! Because my son is alive. And it's the same message we're talking about today. The Gospel is good news. It's radical news. It's crazy news. It's news that, that God became a man in Jesus Christ. It's news that He came and lived the life that we were supposed to and couldn't because we are really sinful people in thought, word, and deed. But He died the death that we deserved. And then three days later, He rose from the dead. And He conquered sin, Satan, and death. And He offers salvation to anybody who repent and believe. Our message is the same message. Jesus is alive. Jesus is ruling. Jesus is still saving. Jesus is still blessing. And Jesus is still sending out those who He has saved to declare and testify to the goodness and greatness of God. What includes our, all our stories. Let me tell you how messed up I was. Let me tell you all the things that God led me to to save me here so that I had a story to tell about Him. See, every difficulty in your life, every sin you've committed, every sin committed against you, dare I say, was lovingly designed by God to bring about your salvation. To bring about your deep conviction in this crazy story about the resurrection of Jesus. We don't talk about the resurrection of Jesus enough. We'll talk about it in two weeks explicitly on Easter but then Asia takes us another 364 days to talk about it again when Paul says this is the most important truth of our faith. That Jesus, our Lord and our King, is alive. And we are to live in the reality of that resurrection. Just as his brothers will live in the reality that Joseph is not dead, he is alive. We are to live in the reality of a resurrection. And let me just end by telling you what that means. It's not just that Jesus conquered sin and Satan and death. It means that Jesus is still conquering sin and Satan and death. And living in the resurrection means that I live a new position in Christ. I don't define myself by what I have done, by what He has done. The resurrected life is one that gives me new purpose in life. I have something to do. It gives me satisfaction with actually living with less because I know how much I have in Christ. It gives me peace when I fear. It gives me joy when I fail. It gives me courage if I suffer. And it gives me hope when and if I die. And until that day, when I go back to the Lord, I have a message to declare to the world a message that's a testimony about how Jesus invited me in and knew everything there was to know about me 
forgave me and restored me and gave me a new identity and a new purpose in life. And that's why we come to this table. This is the most important thing, and I, I encourage you not to come to it thoughtlessly. The Scriptures warn us about that. Communion is the place where we're reminded that Jesus said, come. And if you don't know Jesus, I would argue that God has orchestrated all things for you to be in this place right now to hear about Jesus. Maybe you didn't plan to be here, but you are here. And I pray that you will partake and you will experience what is a new life. You will come and you will receive because Jesus knows everything you've done. Before you even knew Him, He knew you. Before you ever thought about loving Him, He's loved you. He is in the process of saving you right now. Come and experience the fullness by taking of the wine and taking of the bread and experiencing the cleansing of His Son. And for those who are Christians, it doesn't take but few moments for us to leave here or to be here and to get soiled again. This is not just a new life. It's a reminder we have a renewed life because we still have a flesh that encases our spirit. And so we have a renewed life and we're reminded that Jesus forgives and that sin that you committed in the time that it took to like from last week to this week or from yesterday to today, Jesus already knew about it before you committed it and He has said, I forgive you. Confess and be cleansed. But it's not just that. It's a shared life. We're, we're together in this. That my salvation is not just for me. Your salvation is not just for you. We are brought together to proclaim salvation is the Lord's in Christ. But perhaps most importantly, it's a reminder that this life is not all there is. There's an eternal life waiting for us. There's a final resurrection where we now say Jesus is alive and one day we will all be fully alive with Him in His presence, rejoicing and singing free of sin, and it will be beautiful. I pray that you'll receive His grace today. Let's pray.